Welcome to the Better Business Podcast, a series for those business owner operators who want to create a better business. Here are your hosts, Chris and Mark. Welcome to the Better Business Podcast. It's uh, your host in Sydney, Mark Eggleston, and my colleague in Melbourne, Chris Pesmenti, uh, here with another session of Better Business Tips. How are you, Chris? Very well, Mark. How are you this morning? Pretty good. Are you feeling fully relaxed after your Easter? I am feeling fully relaxed. I'm, I'm getting a... I just have to uh, apologise for some of these notifications that keep popping up on my, um, on my screen here. Um, but I am relaxed. Uh, I've had a good break. Obviously, school holidays with the kids down here in Victoria, as I'd imagine around the country. Um, I'd take it you're pretty pumped for the beginning of the Commonwealth Games. Well, a sports, you know what a sports fan I am. <laughs> the, the, the only thing is that even sports fans don't get pumped for the Commonwealth Games. Well, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very lovely shot. So, Chris, I've been thinking, um, you, know, you and I often talk about when we're dealing with owner-operated businesses and dealing with the owner of that business, how often it's quite difficult for them to transit out of being an excellent technician in whatever field they've chosen to be a technician in, into, being, into running the business. I'm really interested if you've experienced that and yeah. what your thoughts on it are. Yes, uh, probably experience it every time I end up working with a with a client. Realistically, because I think that that's um, the main reason why an owner operator would would probably bring in outside help. When I think we've discussed in the past, when they exhaust the level of their technical skill and they need to bring on a bunch of new skills, but the bit I think you're referring to there, which adds a, a new flavour to that, is when they're actually passionate about one of those technical skills. And the thing that I come across a lot is as businesses grow, as they grow and as they um, evolve into uh, more complex, I guess, org charts and structures, what job does the owner or the owners or the partners of that business actually do? Because they came into the business with a passion for some sort of technical or operational uh, level of, uh, of performance, you know, whether they were a really good salesperson to begin with or whether they, they were real product boffins or they were just really good technicians in a profession like they were, you know, they loved uh, doing accountancy or they loved doing financial planning or they loved doing uh, carpentry or all that sort of stuff. But then as the business grows, uh, we just assume that more and more um, people take up those different roles in the business. But there's still a fire inside these people that they want to do something with that technical skill. Is that, is that the bit that you're, you're referring to specifically? That is absolutely one of the things I'm referring to. And the other thing I'm referring to is if they're going to shift out of their technical expertise into, I would say, a leadership role, yep. what are the, the difference in skills? What are the difference in skills required to do that? Yeah, well, again, they're great, great topics. So why don't we, why don't we have a good discussion about that? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good idea. Do you want to give an example or would you like me to? I would, I'll, 
why don't you begin with an example and then I'll, I'll, I'll fire off a few. Okay. I worked with a very interesting business. I don't work with them too much now because they've pretty much got what they needed. This was a guy who wanted new sails for his sailing boat and he couldn't buy the sails that he thought he wanted. So he had the idea of making a machine to make the sails, which he duly did. He'd never done this before, I might add. And he made this extraordinary machine to cut out the sails. So he thought, well, that's pretty good. Maybe I can sell this machine, which he started making these machines to cut out sails. And he did make the machines and he sold them all over the place and around the world. And then he thought, well, if it can cut out sails, it can cut out lots of other things. So he made a different machine to cut out lots of things like vertical blinds and all sorts of things like that. Hmm. Extraordinary. What went on in this guy's head I have no idea but he could just dream up this machine <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing was as he got bigger he's he's technically really good he can use all sorts of CAD programs he can view how the machine works <clears throat> but as the business got bigger he started having more and more staff and his personal skills were not exactly what you'd call excellent yes they're okay but they weren't excellent so at a point well, he's now got, let's say he's got 20 employees or something like that. He has to manage them as well as inventing new machines, building bits for the new machine, servicing the machines they've got all over the world. And this became really, really interesting. And it was very difficult for me as their coach to shift him off wanting to play with the machine all the time into managing people or to get him to realise that maybe managing the people wasn't his thing. Yeah, really interesting. And wh- where did that one end up? Well, I'd be uh, interested to know what, you did, what was your approach. Well, uh, it's a good question, really good question. My initial approach was to go down a functional path. In other words, who should do what? You know, um, you and I have both done this a number of times when you're wanting to get someone to step up as a CEO in a business. And you lay that out to a number of people in the room that you're in front of, a lot of hands go up. Then when you roll out the job description of the CEO, a lot of hands go down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or managing director or whatever you want to call it. Um, Yes. Anyway, so I started on a functional path with him. So who should do what role? Yep. And... um, that was quite interesting, but he kept he kept transgressing. He kept his his delight and his joy in the world was mucking around with the machines. So we'd go down a path, and uh, of, of him letting go of things, and then he'd transgress and he'd go backwards. Yep. And he'd start mucking around the machines again. Then he then he employed salespeople, and some of them were good and some of them weren't so good. So he'd do some sales because he was so passionate about this machine. He could sell it quite well. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing that they still hold the passion. Oh, he could just information, don't they? The passion. He held the passion yeah. so well. Um, it wasn't at no point did I feel I was truly successful in doing this. We yep. did make ground on it, but um, it wasn't anywhere fully successful. I don't think the business, you know, did okay. Yep. Um, Where do you think it didn't work? Was it the approach? Was it was the willingness to change? The willingness to change. It's really simple. Yeah. Uh, because he had this, he could pull these machines out of his head extensively and no one else could do that and they were quite vulnerable in a way because it, it, it was 
really dependent on him doing that. Um, it was his willingness to change. Yeah. And that, that's some of, one of the things, and it's a, it's a great example that we speak as business coaches where we will, I mean, I, I would say use the 80-20 rule, maybe even 90-10. Um, when we're working with people, you generally get people who are willing to change or at least people who, and then there's those who give the lip surface of being willing to change and then they don't. They just, they just for whatever reason, they can't attach any, any broader um, enjoyment or purpose or, or just any desire to, to change the way they're doing things. Yeah, in um, his case. It's, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. We're not 100% successful in this, are we? Not always. Look, it, the coaching did have an effect on their business, definitely. Yes. yes. No doubt about that, but it wasn't as great as I would have hoped. Yep. And we, ha- we had a good relationship. We still have a good relationship. You know, nine years down the track, I still see them occasionally. We have a good relationship. Yes. But it just didn't. Uh, and you get to a point, I got to a point as the coach that I went, he's not going to change. It, it, this just isn't going to happen. Yeah, so then you have to start adapting some of the other things you do in that business to handle the fact that someone isn't going to change. That's exactly right. You have to change it. You can't be wedded to a path because it isn't going to happen. So you change your coaching, you change how you work with them a bit. Yep. Um, you give them the things they will change with. And that's what I did. And I think one of the things there that you can also do, and I'd be interested to know if you did it, was then you can reset the expectations of the staff about what the what the reality of the scenario is because then they have a choice. Really interesting you raise that and that's a difficult one for this reason that when you have someone like this person running the business, yep. staff's expectation of them as a human being is that they have no faults. Yes. So part of my job as a coach when dealing with the staff was to say, look, this person is brilliant in what they do. He's got an extraordinary mind, but he's not a perfect human being. So things are going to go wrong. And when you say that it's difficult, I like that because one of the things that I always try and get across to people is that business is difficult. Life is difficult. We don't have to, um, on, on this utopian desire to make everything easy, you have to have hard conversations. You have to face hard facts. You have to face hard reality sometimes. And one of the things I always try and get across to people, and no doubt you did in this example, is that when you reset the expectations with staff members around individuals' willingness to change as the business requires them to change, if they're unwilling to budge or you can see that it's going to be a very long burn in, in terms of them actually making shifts, then at least you can arm people with choice. You can, yeah. say, you can, you can put up with it. You can adapt your own style to deal with it or you can go somewhere else exactly my point to the staff was it's going to not serve you or anyone to make him wrong yes it's just not it's not going to get anyone anywhere so do exactly what you just said accept it adapt or maybe don't work there yeah so i guess that's an example of um one where someone was a little bit of an immovable object in, in, a, in a lot of ways, but like you said, the coaching had a really good effect on the business because you adapted the style to suit. Do you have an example where someone has really made oh, a, I do. A, a, that shift? Because I'd be interested in, in discussing or, or at least exploring a little bit of what was the difference? What did um, they do differently? Yeah, so what, what, what's this, this other example? 
So um, a good example of, of this was I was dealing with an architectural firm that employed quite a lot of people. And one of the partners in that firm had been elevated to CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and architects are really interesting people to deal with in that they are always extremely passionate about what they do. It's quite a creative process. It's quite a mathematic process and they love doing it. And they're quite thinky quite often because you have and, to be. And when you say thinky, that they love they detail. And... They, live, they love detail and they live in their heads. Yep. Anyway, this guy had not really done this role before. So I had to spend a lot of time with him uh, coaching him around what a really uh, what a leader really needed to do. And for that, I used the tool that you often use, which is the three segments of a circle, which is they have to instill purpose in their staff or create purpose. Mm-hmm. They have to manage the energy. And this is where they really struggle is managing the energy. So this is like the swimming coach not being in the pool on yes. the edge. Yep. They struggle not to be on the edge of the pool. Yeah. They get in the pool. They start drawing buildings. They start doing whatever <laughs> they need to do. Not helpful. Um, yeah. And then to enable action, you know, to get people to do what they agree on. So that, just to recap that, that so it's creating a sense of purpose for the organisation. Yeah. Managing and, the energy of the team and then, and then allowing them, the team to actually work do, and implement and do the stuff. Yeah, do what they agreed on. Do what they agreed they'd do. Because then you have to get around the staff and go, how's this going? How's that going? You know, how's it going What we, on the particular thing we agreed on? But if you're going back into being an architect all the time, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. The, the interesting thing about this guy is we spent quite a bit of time one-on-one and he was interested in changing and he did change. And what was the catalyst? What, what was the, the biggest leap? I mean, you said thinky in his head, uh, boffin. Uh, technically, you know, probably very, very good at what he does. What shifted, what were you able to work with him on to shift? Really simple, face-to-facing with one-on-one with the staff when he and needed so what, to. what was happening there? Well, they'd all agree on, uh, previous to this, they'd all agree on doing something that he'd wander off and look at spreadsheets or do more building work or something and not get in front of people. Yeah. Not get right in their face, one-on-one. And he started doing that. Was that uncomfortable for him initially? Yeah, it was uncomfortable initially. It was. Yeah, really interesting. And then what developed just out of those meetings? Just building rapport, building some... Oh, well, he looked like a leader. And moved into more of a mentoring space? I saw him as a leader because if you're sitting with one of your staff one-on-one talking to them about something they may be having difficulty with them or giving them some ideas, you start to look like a leader. Yeah, interesting. And he did start to look like a leader. And then he became a leader. And then became one. Yeah. Just uh, by so, osmosis, as if oh, overnight. Well, yeah, this is an act as if. Yeah. Really worked well. Um, yeah, it, was, uh, it took a while, though, um, and I had to manage my own expectations around how long this would take. It, wasn't, it took probably eight months, I reckon. Yeah. And even it's, after eight months, there'd be a lapse every now and then and go, oh, my God, it's okay. We're having a lapse here. Yeah, but that's okay, too. It is. Interesting how, uh, go on. It's not perfect. No, it's right. It's, a, it's not perfect. Um, one of the things that we mentioned on the last podcast, read the, you know, the differences between some of those um, di- uh, disciplines of coaching, training, consulting, mentoring, uh, facilitating and whatnot. Um, it seemed like 
what I get a sense is that when someone gets elevated into those uh, higher roles or CEO role or someone that's got that um, inferred power, if you like, that that um, organisational chart power in a situation, the more that they they reduce the um, status of that role when they're in one-on-ones, it really sort of breaks down those barriers. It absolutely does. And I think you probably would have done this and I've done this when someone is becoming a MD or a CEO, I would always get them to understand it's just a role. It's not status. It is just a role. I'd be interested to know as well, it, it, what I find in those situations <coughs> where leaders do move from um, being, if you like, a divisional head or, or you know, managing a team and then into one of those um, very, very spotlighty roles like a CEO or a managing director um, or a CFO or, or whatever it is, where there's just one of them, that they, they can shift from the, uh, what would you call it, the technical uh, expert in, into a mentor. And if they don't have some sort of framework in order to build those mentoring skills and being able to handle those one-on-one situations, it can just become, depending on what their personal style is, that it still can become quite a, um, not, not a toxic relationship, but it, 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 there can be no change. It could just be like, yeah, well, now I'm sitting in the room with a CEO and they're going to tell me everything they know rather than the CEO acting like a mentor to the staff around them, asking them questions, coaching them through situations, um, giving them examples and, and stories and of when they face similar hurdles in their uh, career and their progress. Did, did you find that with this? Oh, totally. Uh, and that, that's, you know, we've, you and I use this term all the time, which is coach, not play. Yeah. And that's what you need to understand, be a coach. What have you seen uh, playing out in this area of transition from being a great technician to being a leader? Well, I've seen quite a lot. Um, I might just make a point here that I think one of the overarching things that they need to consider is, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, is that you're going to need more softer skills and harder skills here. Yeah, it was exactly what I was just going to mention because just the other day, I was drawing up a, a situation on a whiteboard uh, for a, a leadership team in a client that I work with. And there was a lot of, um, what, what would you say? There was a lot of tension, not, not like angry tension, but just you could tell people were tired and tense and a bit burnt out. And, and you know, the things that can happen when we've, we go through busy periods. And so I just drew up uh, like a seesaw diagram and said, on one end, on one seat at one end of the plank here is, is all the hard commercial um, focus of the business so that the make, hitting budget, making sales, implementing projects, all that sort of stuff. And on the other end is all the, what, what you refer to then as the softer skills, you know, more the human side of the business, like how, how are we feeling? What's the culture? What, what are the, if you like, the hygiene factors? In, in that business and these are the focuses on that seat and I got them to draw uh, which one do they think is actually touching the ground and the ground being the focus of the business over the last six months and so all of them drew the, this lopsided seesaw very heavily to say we've been focusing on the hard side of business quite consistently for uh, you know six months and when we had the discussion around 
what it meant with the seat, with the with the soft skills, if you like, the softer uh, focus, the human skills of the business being raised way up in the air. I said, what does this gap represent uh, to you guys as a leadership team? And and they said it it means what it represents was that it our our focus on our culture and how we're feeling and and how. Um, the mental state of the business to to come to work and and actually get through this stuff is becoming detached from the business. It's it's actually we're, we're letting it go. It's like it's flying up into the air somewhere. Where all we're doing is concentrating on the on the commercial and the cultural is actually becoming quite detached. And it was just a, a good checking point for them to say, okay, so where where do we need to spend some more time? How do we readdress this balance? It's not to say we need to go hard right into all those softer skills it just means we need to bring them back closer so that that seesaw is sitting relatively um level and that you can bounce up and down as you need and it's so really yes yeah, no, so keep going no. no so i was just going to say so when i um look at some of the examples of what, what you're talking about there that uh, leaders need to ad- adapt and um develop some of these uh what you call softer skills um i often have this uh, if you like a bit of a philosophical discussion with clients that have kind of come through this period that we're describing where they've gone from the technician who started the business um, into another role that is so far removed from when they, uh, you know, their initial vision for themselves, whether it might be the CEO or managing director or chairman or managing partner or, or whatever it is. Um, when, when you look at this, this journey, there's this, um, uh, real, I have this philosophical discussion that says, at what point do you realise that the only thing you need to do in your new role is manage the energy of your team? And and it's funny when they always they always say to me, oh, when you first brought that up, I I kind of got it, but I didn't believe it. Now it's the only thing I do. Yeah, I just float around and talk to people and and uh, make sure they're okay, and I remove some problems for some people, I mentor others, I coach others, and it, it's, a, it's a really beautiful uh, transition. It is a beautiful transition. I was really um, delighted you brought up that seesaw thing because um, I've, I've used it as well. And when it, some, what I used to say to clients quite regularly was if the soft stuff is the end of the seesaw way up in the air, if you imagine you're at the circus and you had an acrobat and they were twirling through the air and they jumped on the high end, in other words, softer skills, which mm-hmm. is the one in the air, what happens when you do that in a business is all the hard skills come show up. So you, if you do it too hard, if you jump on the soft skills too vigorously, yep. it'll put the seesaw around the other way and then you'll have all the hard skills and all the, all the hard issues showing up. Yeah, it becomes a big love in, and everyone feels great. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, kind of oh forget, my god, we forget how to sell, and we forget how yeah. to do, and we forget how to actually um, make money. So you do have to have a balance there. It's, it's um, I'm so that is a, such a good analogy, particularly when you drew it up and said what what exists in the gap here between the soft skills and the ground. Yeah, and, and it's an easy one that, it, it, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast, they, they just do it themselves and check in with their leadership teams. Just say, hey, I'm going to draw the seesaw. I want everyone up here to draw their own seesaw or, or do it on their page and let's share our ideas. Let, let's work out where we feel the gaps are 
and what do those gaps represent and just have a great conversation about it. And what you'll end up finding is that um, you can come out of that with almost like a mini action plan just to say, you know what, we have been focusing very hard on, on either the, you know, the soft side of the business or the hard side of the business. What do we need to do to bring it back into balance? Um, m- most of the leaders that, that I work with um, have this big, not, not a big issue around balance, but the word balance and I guess the, um, you know, the old term of getting that work-life balance is usually very high on their agenda. Uh, it's something they haven't had for a long time. Do you think they've had awareness around work-life balance? I think there's a lot of awareness around it, and I think that there's no no doubt that it's been a conversation for decades. But what we're finding is that the more tools that we have these days to make our life seemingly easier, <laughs> the more the more complex oh, um, God, that our lives is, are becoming. That is so the truth. And it's that that little counterintuitive um, side of side of things where often the opposite is true. We we surround ourselves with all this technology that gets sold to us that it's going to make life so much easier. But if I never used one app in the past and now I'm using forty apps, how's that actually made my life easier? Exactly. (laughs) So, I think that what happens is that there's been a lot a lot of awareness around this idea of work life balance. but we, we have a very good habit of making sure that we uh, fill, our, fill our time with stuff. And so when it comes to that idea of, of uh, what leaders transitioning from a, a heavy technical application operational uh, role in their own business and moving to another role, I often find that there can be a lot of guilt that sits in there that says, well, but, but I'm not as busy as what I was. Oh. It's so glad you raised that because I was about to raise two points with you on mm-hmm. this exact, well, not exactly on this, but close to it. I have seen that guilt thing. And then out of the guilt, the, the owner of the businesses often say, I'm feeling guilty because I'm taking a bit more money home. And should I share the numbers with the staff? I always say, and I don't know what you say here, I always say, share the numbers. And don't feel guilty because you're the one taking the risk or you and your partners are the ones taking the risk. So why would you feel guilty? And how much energy does it take not to share the numbers? Yeah, that, that, that's the point. That is the point. I had this uh, example and this is going to, it won't give away the business to the general population, but if anyone from this business listens to this, they'll know exactly who they are. I had a quite an in-depth conversation with a, a, a partnership of, of one of the clients I work with exactly on that point about how much energy it takes not to share the numbers or not to be transparent as an organization. Um, and it's extraordinary. And whilst, whilst I absolutely understand that people, uh, depending on their conservative nature or, or just some fear that they have that they can't overcome. Um, I don't, I don't enforce this on anyone. But what was interesting was I ran a bit of a session with them and said, okay, what are all the fears that you have about sharing the numbers? And so what do you think fear number one is that comes out for people? Uh, the staff will think we're making too much money. Or and then they'll... They'll want more. Exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fear number one. Uh, the staff will see what, what, what we turn over or what we make and then they'll, they'll put their hands out for pay rises. And... 
then what happens is you say, well, the, the opposite actually happens. I said, so what situation do you have now? And they said, oh, we've got all our staff beating down the door for pay rises. And it's interesting because in full disclosure, you can explain it. Without disclosure, you actually, the only method your staff have by getting um, recognition and, and feedback is by getting more money. So what happens is that if you don't have those good mechanisms in place to reward staff and offer feedback and be transparent as a business and link their performance and their um, uh, pay and bonuses or however you structure any of that stuff in your organisation, if that's not transparent, then the only way they'll negotiate with you is generally via their pay packet because that's the only way that they'll attach value to their effort. Yeah, that's their only recognition they've got. Yeah, so without disclosure, you get you actually create the exact problem you fear. With disclosure, you can actually uh, paint a really good picture of if we do this, then this can happen. If we don't do this, then we can't make this happen. And most of the uh, owner-operator businesses that we work with, then they're not all rolling in money. I mean, business is a hard, it's, it's a blood sport. It is a blood sport and they're not all rolling in money. They make money. A lot of them, most of them, nearly all yep. of them, but it's tough. But it is tough. And, and, and they have a lot of stress too. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of risk. There are houses on the line. There are livelihoods on the line. There are a lot of things on the line that, that they could easily explain to people. But I think that that also comes with a certain amount of guilt or potentially can sometimes be seen as arrogance or, or whatever as well. And this is the thing that I often encourage for organisations to do is, is to work out the actual language of explanation that suits your business. That way you can uh, be as transparent as you like and not fear transparency because culturally, if you're transparent with your business and you've built a good culture and then the ones that start running to you and saying, oh, well, because you had a good year, I want some more money. But perhaps you start having a different conversation about whether they're the right people to fit into your business. That's exactly, that is exactly right. When you get that culture of around full disclosure, fully ramped up, there will be people who might not necessarily fit. And now, I know we're, we've digressed a little bit off the topic, but, yeah, but it's, it's, it is an important point. Yeah. The other thing I was going to raise, and this one really amuses me, and it'll amuse you too, I'm sure, in... The businesses that we, the sort of businesses that we work in, if they have a red hot salesperson and they're looking to elevate someone to MD or CEO, who do they always look at first? The red hot salesperson. Yeah. And then <laughs> what happens is you've just taken your red hot salesperson out of being a red hot salesperson into managing energy, looking after staff, having one to ones, etc., etc. It would be like getting a. Um, how do I do this without getting into sport? Do um, motor car racing. I was, go, I was going to go down to motor car racing. I was actually going to go down to motorcycle racing. It would be like grabbing a uh, red-hot motorcycle rider and saying, You're, this is how stark it is. Okay, So this is going to be a ridiculous analogy, but this, it's this stark. Go and grab Valentino Rossi and say, Valentino, you've been one of the greats of your sport. You've won X amount of uh, world championships on the back of a motorcycle we're opening up a tennis division and because of your you know expertise and brilliance in motorcycle riding and all the attributes you've shown we want you to be our head tennis coach 
That's how stark <laughs> it is when you start grabbing your, your best salespeople because the attributes of selling are so different to the attributes of managing people. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. And I've seen this happen, and I bet you have too. When the salesperson slips into the management role, it's a total WTF moment. <laughs> and, and not only that, I had a, um, you just heard a little bit of clinking there. I can assure you it wasn't, it wasn't people cheersing with scotch whiskey. It was actually my coffee cup falling off the table. Um, one of the things that uh, was obvious to me cutting my teeth in the automotive game way back when, uh, working in, in the dealership structure, we often, uh, anyone who's ever had anything to do or, or or worked within or even just bought a car through like your larger franchise car dealerships generally knows that the people that are either the dealer principal or high up in the management structure are people that have come through the sales department. And it was very, very rare uh, in my day where anyone who showed, um, I guess, the skill and the initiative to be, I guess, the salesman of the month or the salesperson of the month, month on month on month, when they eventually became assistant manager and manager, it was almost like the death knell to their to their progress in their career. Yep. Yeah. I have seen that so often. And so then what happens to be successful? Other behaviours start showing up. Yes. <laughs> what it can do is it can create a culture not only in your business, but when those behaviours show up consistently because... Uh, this wasn't just a local business problem. It was an industry-wide problem. So that's when the culture shows up in the industry. And yeah. people then label that industry and say, well, uh, you know, on those, some of those trust things. I think a lot has actually changed in that um, environment since. Because yeah. really, the automotive industry is just all about sales, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I mean... Not about leadership particularly. It, it'd be interesting. And if we, if we go a little bit risque and a little bit... Um, provocative with some of the commentary in this podcast. If you look at the current snowflake culture of, of people that can't put up with negative feedback uh, or uh, have gone through their whole school career being told that they're brilliant at everything they do without being the ability to spell or write or do basic arithmetic or, or do, you know, a lot of the things we would take for granted. Um, imagine working in an environment where if you're, um, in a sales environment, and this is what happened regularly, where there was a running scoreboard with your name on it, with your budget at the end of that scoreboard, and, and all your team's budget on the end of their line of their scoreboard, and then your actual score of sales, so how many sales or deliveries that you'd done in that month, and this thing was on not only full display uh, to your team, but it was on full display to everyone, anyone that happened to walk by the manager's office. So it, it was a, essentially a, a brutal environment for, for salespeople to not only learn their trade, but, but um, manage their own energy around, well, how do, you, how do you pick yourself up when you're flagging during the month or when you can see that you're tanking or you're just not having a good month or whatever it is? Um, and then now I've got a manager managing me who used to be just like me, but their skill was, was an inherent skill to sell. And maybe I don't have those inherent skills. So how does someone who has um, innate skills train and coach and mentor someone who doesn't have innate skill and they actually need some fundamentals? Well, that's a really interesting point you raised there because, you know, there is the theory that managers aren't born or leaders aren't born, they're made. And I think that's true. And all that suggests is that a lot of people could be leaders once given the tools to lead. 
I hold that every time I walk into a client. Everyone has the ability to lead in some capacity, as long as they've got some tools and frameworks and and um, uh, some self awareness and a willingness, like we spoke about at the start of this discussion, a willingness to change. I think it's worth mentioning here that both you and I are certified in a particular leadership tool, which is called the TLC, the Leadership Circle. The Leadership Circle, um, and that's quite a good tool at if someone is going to become a leader or is newly in a leadership role, highlighting what their shortcomings might be. Uh, I think there's a couple of things worth mentioning about that tool is one that it's very unforgiving (laughs) and it'll turn up everything that you're deficient in. But the thing that I like about it is it focuses on your positives, not your negatives. And and this is a great point because I was just going to mention before around that idea of, um, transitioning with, with the guilt when we got sidetracked when we started talking about the guilt of of changing um you know managing not managing but owners of businesses and partners of business, businesses when they change their roles um when you're going through a transitional stage it's it's not necessarily beneficial to start saying oh but i'm not good at all these things so therefore i i can't or i don't or i have to get better at them and as most um, modern, uh, in a way, and if I can say that, most modern um, thought on, on this topic is, especially developing leadership skills, is that don't put so much time and effort in trying to address those shortcomings. Actually put more time and effort on um, expanding your strengths because everyone has uh, these innate qualities that gets them to where they are today. And a lot of those things are... Um, uh, what would you call uh, ingrained in us when we're quite young and then through our life experiences, we'll build up some other beliefs and behaviors and patterns. And all of a sudden we become these, these uh, uh, vessels with so much um, influences packed into us that to try and unpack and redress all the things that we, we are naturally predisposed not to enjoy doing or potentially not that good at, it becomes too too hard a task. It's like dragging your fingers down the chalkboard when you say to someone, um, oh, by the way, this here is a big blind spot for you. So what we're going to do is we're going to work on that. But then you have to acknowledge for, for people is to say, well, that's a blind spot for a reason. Maybe they don't like doing it. Maybe they're no good at it. Maybe they don't respect it or regard it. It's okay to have weaknesses. We all do. Yep. And, and I think they highlight people's strengths. Then you go, okay, here's all the things you're really good at. And here's the things that people value you for. What if we did more of those things? What else would show up? That is a, that is perfectly articulated is what else would show up? Yeah, because it's not just to say that those are your, um, those are your skills for the rest of your life. No. It's to say you need to create space for other things to show up. Um, one thing I find, I've found in the past, and this is an expression I use quite a bit, is when people are selecting a leader, I often say to them, do not confuse ego with wisdom because people with big egos can look like they're quite wise, but it turns out that it's the exact opposite is the case. It might be going back to a little bit of that act as if thing you mentioned earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm acting as if I'm a genius Yeah. until people, yeah. Until people work out that you're not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know about you, but I think we've probably nearly covered just about everything do you think I just want to finish that example? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we got sidetracked for a good ten minutes there. When it gets to the um, 
to the guilt of changing our role in business as we get, if you like, higher and higher up in the org chart. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen quite commonly, um, especially with businesses I've worked with where, where there is a majority shareholder, so the person that started the organisation, they might have sold down equity to other people in the past and, and that's okay, but they're typically still the majority shareholder. And realistically, in uh, whether it's family businesses or, or growing um, privately owned businesses, realistically, a lot of the organisation still looks to that founding um, shareholder as, as the, the decision maker, regardless of where they sit in the business. It's okay to be a little bit lost. There is a transition point when, when you do, when someone like us will come in and help you redefine the roles in the organisation. But it's okay to be lost. And I always give, set the expectation with some of the managing directors I've worked with as they go through this transition in their, in their um, progress from being an operational manager into, you know, or typically as the operational head or a CEO into a managing director, into a, a chairperson or a board member or whatever, whatever that progress looks like in their organisation is it's okay to feel a little bit lost as you get other people to start doing the jobs that you used to love doing. It's okay to, to, to actually sort of take a little bit of a um, mental break and a, and a uh, if you like, just a physical break from the business to say, okay, what is it that, I, that the business requires of me now? And it quite often goes back to what you spoke about earlier on in, those, in that transition that you spoke about with that uh, architectural partner where they need to start really holding the vision of the business. They really need to start creating that, that culture and that purpose and that vision at that higher level. Then they need to really work on what are the leadership attributes and the, um, I guess, the interpersonal attributes that they need where we spoke about those hard and soft skills. And then they need to be able to, to actually go and rally the troops to say, or in a way, get out of the way for people to actually do the job that you've employed them to do. So yeah, I think, I think yeah. get out of the way thing. Get out of your own way and get out of their way as well. Yeah. And how many times have you seen? How many times have you seen it, Mark? Where you've worked with a, a leader of a business where they they are the part of me, the majority shareholder of the business, and they they've booked a holiday with the family and they are absolutely dreading it. They're dreading every second. (laughs) And then they go away and they come back. I've had this happen just last week. And what happens when you, and how does that conversation go? Oh, it's, this is how it went. I'm dreading it. I'm dreading it. Oh, this, all this stuff won't happen. And this. I'm going to take my laptop. Yeah, I'm going to take my laptop. And um, I'm the rainmaker in the business, you know, blah, 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 blah. Came back and I said to them, how'd it go? And there was a stony silence. Well, almost nothing went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it literally happens every time, every time. It, it's that piece where they're getting out of the way bit that yeah. often people will get to this point where they, they become aware to say, I think I'm, I might be just getting in the way a bit or I might be holding it back, but I don't know how to let go. And then there's this forced break of, of being overseas or in a different time zone or whatever it is. And then they come back and they go, oh, geez, you know what? Everyone seems yeah. pretty cool, you know? Yeah, pretty cool. They, exactly. got, they got on with business. They did their jobs. 
whatever. I had the best example where, where one of the guys I worked with for, for quite some time, he, he did it. And he came back and he said, you know what, Chris? I don't think I've got a job. Um, <laughs> he literally said uh, this, I don't think I've got a job in this place. And I said, isn't that perfect? Now what do you want to do? And we, we just spent the next, you know, the next couple of months just creating what would bring value. What does the business need now from him? Oh, that is such a perfect outcome. Yeah. But yeah. it was it was that bit where you had to really get out of the yeah. comfort zone. We yeah. talked about pushing those boundaries of the comfort zone. You had to really get out of the comfort zone and almost feel a little bit out of control to realise just how much control there is in the organisation already. Exactly. And, and while ever you're there, it won't show up. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So, so we have gone we have gone via the uh, the proverbial cape to get there in the end. Um, as as we always mention, these these things are a little bit free form. But they should be, you know, yeah. yeah. So what would you say would be the three? What in your mind are the three big takeouts if someone? is newly in a leadership role or going into a leadership role or has been in it for a little while. Uh, especially if, if they're the owner operator of the business, yeah. Yeah, if they're if they're the, the original owner, mm-hmm. it's okay to be lost. You will feel lost and you will feel guilty and that everybody goes through that. That's number one. So yeah. if, you, if we can set the expectation that you're going to feel lost and you'll probably feel some guilt, about the fact that you are not physically working as hard as what you were or that the demands of the role might not be the same, it's completely okay. That's what you go through. Takeout number two would be look at what the what would realistically bring value to the business from a from your role now. What what does the actual what does the business need from you now? If it doesn't need the um, operational, get your hands dirty, technical aspects of, of what you used to do, what does it need now? And usually that would be a more of a mentoring space to start developing the people that you're going to backfill your role with. And then the third one would be really look at investing in some sort of um, leadership development or self-awareness about your own personal style. Oh, I think that's perfect. I really think that's perfect. Is um, there anything you would add there? Yeah, there's a tiny bit I'd add at the end of that last point about investing your own leadership style. Having done this with a few people, a really interesting thing happens here is when they do that, they start turning up differently at home. You know, yeah, it's, it's not just about business, is it? No, it's not. And then I say, oh, God, you know, my kids are saying, oh, you know, I'm a lot easier to get on with or I'm not so tense and I'm having great conversations with my wife and, it's really interesting when they do this. Yeah, it, it has a universal uh, impact. It does. I think it's worth mentioning here that we often say, Chris, that this is a perfect example of in a business, what got you to where you are now won't get you further. What got you here won't, won't get, get you there. Yeah, because this is really what it's about. Absolutely spot on, Mark. Lovely chatting to you. Lovely chatting to you. Um, I know you're off down the coast with your family. That'll be a lot of fun. Have fun. 